High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is part 10 of our ongoing series, Erotic 80s. I'm getting a little fed up at sexually emancipated ladies being referred to as broads. I'm not doing this because somebody's making me do it. You're a strange girl being a naughty boy. Last year, he was discovered making amateur videos of his own sex robbers. was maybe the most 80s year of the 80s, a year in which a number of snapshots of what it was like to be alive that decade were released. It was the year of Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities and Oliver Stone's Wall Street and Donald Trump's The Art of the Deal. For our purposes, the most important thing published in 1987 was the third volume of feminist sex researcher Cher Heights' report on her findings from surveying thousands of American women. The Height report on love, passion, and emotional violence indicated that a majority of women felt that the men in their lives 
still didn't treat them as equals. These women said that when they tried to push their male partners to better fulfill their needs, for independence or intimacy or more respect, the men became defensive. As a result, according to Haidt, women were turning their backs on the idea that marriages could fulfill them. The women Haidt surveyed were instigating divorces, having affairs, or shifting their priorities off of men and onto their friendships, their kids, or their careers. Haidt's findings provoked an immediate backlash. Publications ranging from the New York Times to the Washington Post to Time to Newsweek set out to discredit her by any means necessary. Knowing what we know about Time magazine, it's not that shocking that they called Haidt's work dubious, of limited value, and dismissed the women she collected data from as malcontents. But other publications also found ways to dismiss and disparage the work, often by willfully misreading it or by attacking Haidt personally. Newsweek, which grumbled that Haidt was a demagogue in their story, which was headlined, Men Aren't Her Only Problem, was duty-bound to dismiss Haidt's findings because they didn't mesh with the hysteria the magazine had stoked a year earlier. By running what became an infamous cover story on the so-called marriage crunch, which used later debunked data to suggest that women who waited until they were established in their careers to get married, only had a 3% chance of finding a mate. If women read Haidt's work and lost the urgency to find a husband who would only disappoint them, Newsweek's project of scaring women out of the workforce would fall apart. Not incidentally, Haidt was a very conventionally hot woman with light curly hair and signature red lips. She looked like the opposite of a boner killer. And this in itself seemed to intensify the reactions against her. She had been a favorite punching bag of Playboys since her first report, which contended that most women cannot achieve orgasm through intercourse without clitoral stimulation, was released in 1975. Those looking to take her down a peg were gleeful when it emerged that she had posed nude for Playboy as a starving grad student in 1971. In the 70s, nothing could hold Haidt back. Her first report sold 50 million copies. But in 1987, the media's op against her was in tune with the times. It coincided with the release of a film that dramatized and exploited the exact tensions between men and women that Haidt's findings had shown were roiling through the culture. The success of this film far outshined Haidt's work. Though not the most profitable film of 1987, it certainly became the most talked-about film of the year, if not the decade. That film was Fatal Attraction. If anyone doubted the veracity of Haidt's findings on male resentment, 
All they needed to do was go to a movie theater during the fall of 1987. When Fatal Attraction was the number one film at the box office for eight weeks, and from the beginning of that run, inspired an unusual kind of audience participation. At theaters around the country, male spectators could be heard cheering for the death of Alex Forrest, the character played by Glenn Close, who seeks revenge when her one-weekend stand, Dan, played by Michael Douglas, tries to ghost her. A large, vocal segment of the audience wanted Dan and his angelic stay-at-home wife, played by Ann Archer, to literally turn Alex into a ghost. They shouted at the screen things like, punch the bitch's face in, kick her ass, just kill the bitch. As Susan Faludi put it in her feminist classic, Backlash, in the anonymity of the dark theater, male moviegoers could slip into a dream state where it was permissible to express deep-seated resentments and fears about women. Faludi also quotes Darlene Chan, an executive at 20th Century Fox, who assessed rival studio Paramount's film as, quote, the psychotic manifestation of the Newsweek marriage study. Fatal Attraction tapped into a fear and hatred that had always been there, but hadn't had much of an outlet since the women's movement had gone mainstream. Now, this movie punctured the skin, allowing everything that had been bubbling underneath to come gushing out. That meant straight dudes treated fatal attraction showings like their own Rocky Horror Picture Show. But it also created opportunities for conversations about that very toxicity. Given the radical changes that have been instigated recently by the Me Too movement, sometimes we have a tendency to imagine the past, before five or six years ago, as a time of rampant abuse and misogyny in which any dissent was silenced. But you don't have to dig deep into the reams of writing inspired by Fatal Attraction in 1987 and 1988 to see that within the incendiary moment which this movie both captured on film and instigated, there was fiery debate that gave voice not just to men who insisted they had been disenfranchised by having to accommodate women in the workplace, but also to men who thought that was a load of horse shit, and to women who saw themselves and their own experiences reflected by Glenn Close's Alex rather than demeaned by her. Things can mean more than one thing. The fact that Fatal Attraction is a movie in which two women are pitted against one another and have to fight to the death over a mediocre man may have embodied the Newsweek marriage doom casting, but it also gestured toward the complaints about men from Cher Heights research. We will discuss all this and much more. So join us, won't you, for part 10 of Erotic 80s. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. It's taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. 
If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 36,025, 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash remember. That's netsuite.com slash remember to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash remember. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Dan Gallagher is a Manhattan lawyer whose economic anxiety is manifest in the realistically cramped city apartment he lives in with his beautiful homemaker wife, Beth, played by Ann Archer, and their kid, Ellen. With no room for a home office, he drowns out the sound of his loved ones with the 1987 version of noise-canceling headphones while he catches up on work. So it's no wonder that the chic, boozy downtown book party they attend that night, hilariously for a lifestyle manual based on quote-unquote ancient samurai discipline, feels like a much-needed uncaging. Dan and his sidekick, Jimmy, are excited to be in a packed crowd where they can lose their dates, guzzle free champagne, and ogle edgy-looking women. But when Glenn Close's Alex catches Jimmy looking, she shoots daggers with her eyes. Hi there. She looks good too. Glad to see I've lost your touch. I think she likes me. You do, huh? I think she wants me. I think you're bad in zero for two, and I don't want to know you. No, she was undressing me with her eyes. You think so? Good luck now. She had trouble with the buttons, huh? We get a better look at Alex when Dan orders a drink next to her at the bar. Her shiny black dress is cut down to her waist, and her blonde, curly hair is wild, a lion's mane. She sort of apologizes for humiliating Dan's friend. <laughs> no, I'm not saying anything. I'm not even going to look. Was it that bad? Well, let's just say I was glad I wasn't on the receiving end of that one. <laughs> Cheers. I hate it when guys think they can come on like that. Aw, oh, Jimmy's okay. He's just a little insecure like the rest of us. 
my name is Dan Gallagher. Alex Ross. Nice to meet you. What is your connection here? I'm an editor at Robinson Hearst. Uh, well, I'm with Miller Goodman and Hearst. I do all your legal work. I haven't seen you around their office, though. <laughs> I've just been with them a couple of weeks. From across the room, Beth gestures to Dan that it's time to go. Is that your wife? Yeah. Better run along. It was very nice to meet you. As was widely commented on in 1987, Anne Archer is more classically beautiful than Glenn Close. And the way she's styled and filmed by Adrian Lyne, she's definitely alluring. In his review of Fatal Attraction, Jay Hoberman called it a psychological kicker that Archer is lit as though she were the sex toy. I think if Line hadn't cast such a beautiful actress as the wife and hadn't filmed her so lustfully, the movie wouldn't have worked. The audience has to feel on a primal level that Dan has something to kill for. A lot of the writing about fatal attraction rolled its eyes at the fact that Beth's whole life is spent taking care of her kid and, like, gardening in a fabulous gardening coat. And she seems to have no interest in breaking out of traditional stereotypes of the good wife-slash-mother. But Beth does have expectations that Dan do certain things for her, like walk the dog. More onerously, Beth wants to move out of the city and into a fixer-upper in the country near where her parents live. Though the movie doesn't talk about how or whether or not they can really afford this, Douglas's body language suggests, at the very least, this is not how he is psyched to spend his money. The movie tells us we are meeting Dan at a moment when he's feeling emasculated and needs to do something to lash out against the transformation of his life from metropolitan to pastoral. He needs to make a statement of individuality before submitting to the domestic fantasy his gorgeous wife is luring him into. Conveniently, one Saturday when Beth and Ellen are upstate, Dan has to stay in Manhattan for a meeting with the publishing house Alex works for. During the meeting, Dan and Alex get caught in the rain. He invites her to get a drink until it stops. Can I ask you something? What? Why don't you have a date tonight, Saturday night? I did have a date. I stood him up. That was the phone call I made. Does that make you feel good? Does it make me feel bad? <laughs> so where's your wife? Where's my wife? My wife is in the country with uh, her parents visiting uh, for the weekend. And you're here with a strange girl being a naughty boy? I don't think having dinner with anybody's a crime. Not yet. What will it be? I don't know. What do you think? Oh, I definitely think it's going to be up to you. <laughs> say yet. I haven't made up my mind. <clears throat> At least you're very honest. Be your 
attracted to each other at the party. That was obvious. You're on your own for the night. That's also obvious. Two adults. Line then hard cuts to the kitchen of Alex's sparse, meatpacking district loft, where Dan has propped her up on her single girl sink full of dirty dishes. It is implied that the running water turns her on. It is implied that they continue having intercourse while stumbling from the sink to the bed. It is self-consciously silly. With Close's legs wrapped around his waist, Douglas struggles to get his feet free of his pants without dropping her. I find that with sex scenes, the thing to remember is give them something to laugh at or else they'll laugh at you. Line later said, claiming he thought long and hard about where they should fuck in this movie. Now, the sink had erotic possibilities. I, I like water. This is something to keep in mind at the end of the film in which there is a lot of water, but few erotic possibilities. When the pair later get it on in a freight elevator, Line seems to be stealing stylistically from his own films, Flashdance, Nine and a Half Weeks, refining the same visual ideas over and over again in just slightly different contexts. It almost feels like Dan is a boring, middle-aged, married guy who has seen some Adrian Lyne films and over this one lost weekend is living his fantasy of what it would be like to have the kind of exhibitionist sex life depicted in them. Where Nine and a Half Weeks is about the subjective experience of the submissive woman, Fatal Attraction is about objectifying an aggressive woman. Dan does not treat Alex as a pure sex object over the course of the weekend they spend together. But the movie suggests that he wishes he had. They swap stories about their childhoods, and the conversation gets quite intimate, with Dan admitting that one of his foundational childhood traumas was watching Madame Butterfly kill herself. Believing that they've made a real connection, Alex gets angry when Dan tries to cavalierly leave. What's the problem? Christ, I mean, let's be reasonable. Be reasonable. <laughs> what? Thank you, goodbye, don't call me, I'll call you. Look, you knew about me, all right? I didn't hide anything. I thought it was understood. What was understood? The opportunity was there and we took it. Come on now, we're, uh, we are adults, aren't What's we? What's that supposed to mean? I thought we'd have a good time. No, you didn't. You thought you'd have a good time. You didn't stop for a second to think about me. That's crazy. You knew the rules, Alex. What rules? Look, Alex, I like you. And if I wasn't with somebody else, then maybe I'd be with you. But I am. Please don't justify yourself as pathetic. You'd tell me to fuck off, I'd have more respect for you. All right, then fuck off. And you get out! 
That last sound you heard was her literally kicking him out of bed. But then, playing on and preying on his Madame Butterfly confession, before he can get out the door, she slits her wrists. He stays with her one night more. Sometime later, Alex shows up at Dan's office, unannounced, in a devastating, broad-shouldered, belted black leather raincoat. She apologizes and thanks him for staying with her through her suicide attempt. You have to thank me. Oh, yeah, I do. A lot of guys would have just run away. I don't know what I would have done if you hadn't been there. Well, you, uh, you look good. Matter of fact, you look great. Thanks. Is he hitting on her? Maybe. But when she invites him to see Madame Butterfly, no strings attached, he declines. And this precipitates Alex's total downward spiral. Desperate and bereft when a married man declines to spend more than a weekend with her, she sits on the floor of her bare apartment, blasting opera and blinking her lamp on and off, as if it's the flickering neon sign on her womb. Open, but at the age of 36, not for much longer. She insists on meeting Dan again. This is a long clip, but it's probably the most important dialogue scene in the movie. This has got to stop. Dan, if you'd agreed to see me, I wouldn't have called you. You get it, all right? It's over. There is nothing between us. You mean you've had your fun, now you just want a quiet life. <laughs> Why are you doing this? Doing what? You need help. Don't tell me what you I need. need. To, you need to shrink. You're so hostile. I'm not your enemy. You yeah, then why are you trying to hurt me? I'm not trying to hurt you, Dan. I love you. You what? I love you. You don't even know me. Oh, how can you say that? Alex, we spent a weekend together. That's all. You spent that second night. You must like me a little. Because I was concerned about you. Jesus Christ, why do you read so much in everything? I mean, can't you understand? I have a whole relationship with someone else. I am very happy. Whole means complete. If your life's so damn complete, what were you doing with me? Is this what you want to talk about, our imaginary love affair? I'm pregnant. I saw my gynecologist on Monday. Here's his card. You can call him. You don't, uh... Use anything? I had a very bad miscarriage last year. I didn't think I could get pregnant. How do you know it's mine? Because I don't sleep around. Do you think I want an abortion? You're not going to have to pay. Why not? Plenty of one-parent families. At least they don't end in divorce. I don't have a say in this. I want this child. It has nothing to do with you. 
I want it whether you're going to be a part of it or not. Then why are you telling me, huh? Why? Why just go ahead and do it? I was hoping that you would want to be a part of it. I'm 36 years old. It may be my last chance to have a child, Alex. Just think what you're saying. Just think about it. We are going to live with this for the rest of our lives. I know that. I've thought of that. I know how you feel. It's a big thing. But it doesn't have to be a problem. Really, it doesn't. You play fair with me, I'll play fair with you. Alex's stakes are spelled out in dialogue. Dan's are mostly implied. Alex could really fuck things up for him financially as well as personally. This movie was released about a month before the Black Monday stock market crash, which only exacerbated the highly leveraged situation of the mid-80s middle class. Dan clearly doesn't have enough of a margin to pay Alex off to go away. He can barely afford to keep his current family in the lifestyle to which they aspire. A progressive read of Fatal Attraction could see it as gesturing to men who, deep down, felt cheated by Reaganomics. Dan embodies a man who, quote-unquote, did everything right. So shouldn't he feel more financially comfortable by now? He wants, needs, something more to make it all feel worthwhile. And it's that something more that he's looking for from Alex. But his fragile house of cards, which isn't enough to make him happy anyway, will collapse if anyone finds out about his fling. This was relatable to a lot of men who were able to overlook that Douglas's character was also a repellent coward. And many women could empathize with Alex. Despite the stalker behavior, despite the cliches Line lards her with, like filling her lonely bed with haagen and wine. You can overlook a lot if you know what it feels like to be a strong woman with a career and a life who should have everything she needs to stand on her own, but is made to feel like garbage by a man she probably understands is not worthy of her. These are just a few examples of why Fatal Attraction was able to function as a Rorschach test, morphing to accommodate the anxieties and the anger of whomever was watching. I think the scene where Alex reveals her pregnancy is where a lot of viewers, consciously or otherwise, pick their allegiances and decide whether they want to see Dan restore order and emerge with his family intact, or if they want to see Alex get some measure of revenge. The original plan was to thread the needle and sort of accomplish both. But that plan went to the wayside. After the break, we'll go back a bit to talk about how a groundbreaking female studio executive fought to get Fatal Attraction made, and why she ultimately sold out her own vision of the film. 
Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We mentioned Sherry Lansing briefly in our series on Polly Platt. I told a story that Polly herself told frequently about a lunch she went to in the 60s with her husband, Peter Bogdanovich, Howard Hawks, and a 20-something Lansing, then an actress. At one point, Lansing got up from the table and walked across the room. Hawks pointed her out and said to Peter, now that's the kind of woman you should be with. He said this in earshot of Polly, the woman Peter was actually with. Lansing's acting career didn't pan out, and she became a producer and a production executive. In 1980, she was made head of production at 20th Century Fox, becoming the first woman to hold that title at any studio. But after two years, she quit because the title hadn't translated to sufficient authority. In 1982, she started a production partnership with Stanley Jaffe to make films for Paramount. Much of the discourse surrounding Fatal Attraction contended that it struck a nerve because everyone watching could identify with one of the three main characters. Lansing was open about who she identified with. She talked about getting abruptly dumped admitted to driving past her ex's house obsessively. She wanted to see this aspect of her experience reflected on the screen sympathetically. And she didn't think she was the only one. Quote, We've all made a phone call in the middle of the night that we shouldn't have. She found a vehicle to tell her own story in James Dearden's short film Diversion, in which a married man takes advantage of his wife's weekend away to have a fling with a woman who attempts suicide when he tries to go home. In Diversion, the two women are in solidarity and the man is punished for betraying them both. I thought of my own experience, Lansing said, and couldn't let it go. When I watched that short film, I was on the single woman's side. And that's what I wanted to convey in our film. Lansing began working with Dearden on a script. For Lansing, 
Alex's refusal to be ignored was key. That was the essence of the movie for me, she said. She was standing up for her rights, saying, you can't just discard me because it's convenient. I always thought Alex was a successful career woman who became involved with one married man too many. That's what caused her to crack. I wanted the audience to feel great empathy for the woman. But at Paramount, Lansing had to answer to Michael Eisner, who rejected the project because, according to Adrian Lyne, he couldn't fathom making a film about such an unsympathetic man. Then, in 1984, Eisner left Paramount, and Lansing went back to the studio and pitched to the newly powerful Dawn Steele, who had just had her own female-fronted hit that no one else had wanted to make, with Flashdance. In 1985, Steele would be made president of production at Paramount, making her the second woman after Lansing to assume that position at a major American studio. Still, Steele only agreed to make the movie when Brian De Palma agreed to direct. But shortly before shooting was set to start, De Palma declared that he wanted to replace Michael Douglas, who had been attached to the script longer than either the director or the studio. Michael's completely unsympathetic, De Palma said. No one will ever like him. Finally, De Palma said, it's him or me. It's important to note here that Michael Douglas wasn't really Michael Douglas yet. A decade earlier, he had won the Best Picture Oscar for producing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but he hadn't had a starring role in a hit movie until Romancing the Stone in 1984. Hollywood wasn't sure if the success of that film and its sequel, Jewel of the Nile, were any guarantee that audiences would show up to see a Michael Douglas film. But despite the fact that he wasn't bankable enough to guarantee that they would get the movie made, Lansing felt she had to stick with Douglas because he had stuck with her over the years. The saving grace for Fatal Attraction turned out to be Adrian Lyne. Nine and a half weeks had been released to tumbleweeds at the U.S. box office, and Line was at his home in the south of France, thinking about how he should have done that film differently. His agent sent him the script for Fatal Attraction, and he sensed right away that there was something zeitgeist-defining there. He told his wife, Listen, if I don't fuck this up, I know this is a huge movie he would make a conscious effort to rein in his style so as to not get in the way of the material. James Dearden was now pressured to do his part to make sure Fatal Attraction would be a huge movie. And that meant balancing the scales of the script to dilute some of what had drawn Lansing to the project to begin with. Dan needed to become more relatable and Alex more aggressive. While Dearden's short film had the married man calling a number from his little black book, now it was decided that the single woman needed to pursue him. As we went along, Alex became much more extreme, Dearden said. She ended up having a kind of predatory quality. It weakened her case and strengthened his. 
Dearden said he was also asked to create more of an archetypal distinction between adulterous Alex and housewife Beth. He was asked to turn them into, as he put it, the dark woman and the light woman. In early drafts, Beth had been a former teacher who was planning to go back to work. In taking that away, Dearden took away a point of commonality between Alex and Beth. In the end, the only thing they'd have in common was their feeling of ownership over dumb Dan. The casting of Alex was crucial, and it was the last piece of the package to fall into place. Casting agent Billy Hopkins recalled that line kept saying, Get me the new Kim Bessinger. To everyone's surprise, Glenn Close went after the role aggressively. I'd never played a character who was supposed to be sexy, she acknowledged. Even in her previous sex thriller, Jagged Edge, part of the movie turns on the idea that Jeff Bridges is way out of her league. But Close wanted to defy expectations. I knew I could do it, she said. They were so sure I was wrong. They didn't even want me to read because they were embarrassed. As Michael Douglas put it, we were doing a big favor for Glenn's agent by letting her read with me. I don't think any of us had high hopes. I had never seen Glenn in terms of sexuality. Line acknowledged. But when she read with Douglas... It was like lunacy on Earth. She had a way of being self-destructive and sexy at the same time. One thing you can say for Line is that he understands that sexuality is complicated and people can be attracted to one another for a lot of different reasons. This was beyond a lot of people who watched the movie. Much commentary on fatal attraction suggested that Close was cast, as Susan King put it, against type, which was a reference to the roles she had played before, but was also hinting something about the way she looked. Not everyone hinted. Remember Joe Baltake, the syndicated critic who cheered when Body Double flopped and called Thief of Hearts immoral for depicting a woman cheating on her husband in defiance of the work ethic? This was how he began his review of Fatal Attraction. A lot of people think Glenn Close is a very sexy actress. Three, maybe. Okay, maybe only one. Adrian Lyne. Baltake added his opinion that Close simply can't pull off sexiness, not even with what he described as her cosmetic for sluts makeover. The casting of an actress who was not considered to be inherently sexy as a sexual temptress who asked for too much seemed to tap into an ugly feeling in the culture that women who were not super beauties shouldn't press their luck and should be grateful to take whatever men give them. This kind of thing is rarely stated aloud, but it's a powerful theme in romantic tragedy. Think about Dreiser's An American Tragedy and one of its movie adaptations, A Place in the Sun. If you can marry Elizabeth Taylor, Shelley Winters looks disposable. A Place in the Sun is so effective because even if it doesn't fully absolve Montgomery Clift of committing murder, it makes the viewer catch themselves thinking, this wouldn't have happened if Shelley Winters had just bowed out gracefully. 
In the original ending of Fatal Attraction, there was no killing. Line shot an ending in which Alex commits suicide. Dan is arrested for her murder, although Beth quickly finds evidence that absolves him. I thought, this is great, Line said. She got him from the grave. But the thinking behind Fatal Attraction started to morph after the film was test screened in the spring of 1987. At the first screening, Fatal Attraction received a 74 score out of a possible 100. This surprised Lansing, who was sure she had a hit on her hands. Maybe it was a fluke, she thought. So they tested it again and again and again, but something wasn't working. Well, one thing was working. Dan tries to ignore Alex and her pregnancy in the hope that he can avoid telling Beth that he had an affair. But after Alex breaks into their country house and boils their daughter's pet bunny, Beth forces Dan to confess the truth. She kicks him out of the house, but before he leaves, he calls Alex with Beth in the room. Dan, what a pleasant surprise. It's over, Alex. That's all finished. I told Beth she knows all about it. Why don't you speak to her? Why would I want to talk to her? This is Beth Gallagher. If you ever come near my family again, I'll kill you, you understand? Every screening, Anne Archer's final line in this exchange, her threat to kill Alex, got a huge round of applause. Finally, after one screening, Paramount Chief Frank Mancuso pulled Lansing aside and said, I think they want Anne Archer to kill Glenn Close. Lansing said she just, quote, looked at him, speechless, because I thought he was crazy. Don Steele's boss, Ned Tannen, was more blunt about it. He said, quote, they want us to terminate the bitch with extreme prejudice. According to Lansing, Line, quote, went nuts when he heard that. He felt that changing the ending was kowtowing to the lowest common denominator. And I agreed. Here was this wonderful film about how all your actions have consequences, and now they wanted to change the whole point. I felt it was morally wrong, and if I agreed to do it, I'd be selling out. Lansing and Line were hesitant, but Glenn Close flat out refused to shoot the proposed changes. She had labored to portray Alex as a woman with legitimate grievances and an empathetic mental illness whose story ends in tragedy. She did not sign up to play a monster who had to be exterminated like a villain in an exploitation movie. It was going to make a character I loved into a murdering psychopath, she said. She told Lansing and Line, you can take me in a straitjacket, but you can't make me do it. We couldn't even get through the conversation with her, Lansing recalled. 
Adrian and I were already consumed with, we're selling out, what have we done? Looking for allies against the studio, Close got heated with Michael Douglas. How would you feel if they did this to your character? She shouted at him. Michael Douglas said, Babe, I'm a whore. Close was finally able to accept the new ending by positioning it, in her mind, as Greek tragedy. Quote, There's order in the family. Then some element creates chaos. Then order has to be restored. It's restored in tragedies through bloodshed. My blood was shed for order to be restored. It was cathartic for the audience. In the last act of Fatal Attraction, Alex picks Dan and Beth's daughter up from school and takes her to an amusement park, then drops her off at home. Beth gets into a non-fatal car accident while frantically looking for her kid. Dan forces his way into Alex's apartment and tries to kill her. He has her pinned to the ground, his hands wrapped around her neck, choking her out. And as he starts to see the life going out of her eyes, he realizes he can't do it. He lets her go, and she recovers and comes at him with a kitchen knife. He wrestles it out of her hands, puts it down, and leaves her alone in her apartment. He goes to the police, who promised to take Alex in for questioning. Here's where the reshoots begin. Back at the country house, Dan runs a bath for Beth. She asks him for a cup of tea, and he goes to the kitchen to make it. Back in the bathroom, Beth wipes the steam off the mirror to reveal Alex standing behind her. She's wearing the same dress as when Dan tried to kill her, and she's holding the same kitchen knife. She has become fully transformed by her rage. As she berates Beth, Alex scratches her own leg repeatedly with the blade, digging so deep that blood starts to pour from her thigh onto the floor. Beth has not been able to turn off the bathwater, and because their money pit of a country house needs a lot of work, as soon as the tub starts to overflow, the water leaks through the floor and starts dripping from the ceiling of the kitchen downstairs. The dog notices before Dan does, because dogs are always better than men in Adrian Lyne movies. Beth and Alex begin to wrestle, fighting for the knife. Finally, Dan comes upstairs and joins in. This time, he doesn't hesitate to push Alex's head under the bathwater to drown her like the witch he thinks she is. As ugly as this scene is, Line makes a gesture at giving Alex dignity by cutting between a shot of her point of view from under the water of Dan's distorted face and his point of view of her placid one underwater when he thinks he's killed her. If only the movie had ended there. Instead, Close rises from the water with a knife in her hand, reinforcing her status as a supernatural creature, the repressed which always returns. Then Beth, out of nowhere, shoots her dead. This is straight out of the Jagged Edge playbook, 
in terms of the rock-paper-scissors theory of how to end a sex thriller, but also in the sense that we have had no indication that there has been a gun in the house, nor that Beth had any idea how to use a gun to this point. And yet, with a single shot, she's able to do what her husband was not able to do twice by using the full force of his being. In the last shot of the movie, we see husband and wife embrace and walk off camera as line dollies into a framed family portrait. I felt that the ending we arrived at, well, though it's kind of baroque and awful, works better dramatically. Line would say, I think he's right that the new ending gives the film a bigger conclusion. The original ending, which you can watch on YouTube, is far less climactic. But the new ending, no question, is stupider and turns the movie into a victory for high concept and turns it away from the reality it seemed to reference up to that point. It feels pretty cynical for the filmmakers to pass the football to the supposedly amoral audience, refusing to take responsibility for putting something potentially toxic out into the world. However, Line was the savviest in terms of the way he talked in nearly every interview about his experience of watching the audience respond to the film and realizing that, in a sense, they had taken it from him and become the auteurs of the phenomenon. Would anyone on Team Fatal Attraction feel the need to deflect responsibility if the movie had just been a hit? And if it had not seemed to unleash something truly ugly in some moviegoers? That we will never know. But after the break, we will get into the great debate around Fatal Attraction and how it drowned out even other hit films to dominate the zeitgeist of 1987. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Fatal Attraction opened on September 18, 1987. It remained in the box office top 10 until February 1988. Its success helped to kick off the idea of a fall movie season as a time to release serious movies for adults that, box office willing, would stay in the cultural consciousness until the following year, making end-of-year top 10 lists and netting Oscar nominations, which Fatal Attraction did. It received Oscar nominations for Best Picture, Best Actress, close, Best Supporting Actress, Archer, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Editor. Douglas was not nominated, but he did win Best Actor that year for Wall Street. The other big winners that year were Moonstruck and The Last Emperor, and the Fatal Attraction team went home empty-handed. Paramount sent Line a case of champagne to celebrate the box office success, and in October, when the New York Times called the director to check in, he was hungover. 
He told the paper he liked to lurk in movie theaters, watching audiences watch the movie. As the film wormed its way deeper into the culture from week to week, Line said, The reactions are louder and there's a knowing quality. This, he said, made the changes to the film worthwhile. I adored the original ending, but audiences in this country would have thrown rocks at the screen. If you really don't care what an audience thinks, make a home movie and show it on your wall. In Time magazine, Richard Corliss theorized that Fatal Attraction's massive popularity owed to women. The basic unit of movie audiences is the dating couple, he wrote. The woman usually chooses the movie, and the successful picture will be the one she wants to take her man to see. Even in the 80s, especially in the late 80s, a time of retrenchment along the sexual front lines. Obviously, he was writing at a time in which the default concept of a couple was heterosexual. There was something driving Fatal Attraction's success, but it was a little more complicated than Lady's Choice on Date Night. The film's reviews show how it tapped into a sense of sexual chaos in the air. Janet Maslin's rave in the New York Times began by setting the table. Years hence, Maslin wrote, it will be possible to pinpoint the exact moment that produced Fatal Attraction and the precise circumstances that made it a hit. It arrived at the tail end of the having-it-all age, just before the impact of AIDS on movie morality was really felt. At the same time, it was a powerful cautionary tale, and it played skillfully upon a growing societal emphasis on marriage and family, shrewdly offering something for everyone. The desperation of an unmarried career woman, the recklessness of a supposedly satisfied husband, the worries of a betrayed wife. What's more, it was made with the slick, seductive professionalism that was a hallmark of the day. But the most persuasive reviews of the film argue that Fatal Attraction merely put timely cosmetics on conflicts between men and women that had been festering for a long time. It's about men seeing feminists as witches. And the way the facts are presented here, the woman is a witch, Pauline Kale wrote, adding, This shrewd film also touches on something deeper than men's fear of feminism, their fear of women. Although some people argue that this film is about AIDS terror, see what happens when you screw around, Fatal Attraction is much more about men's fear and hatred of women, wrote John Powers in the LA Weekly. By turning close into a hyperbolic monster, it plays on men's lowest and most terrified instincts. Fiddle Attraction is as retrograde a movie as you're likely to see. And I don't care if millions of people find it exciting or entertaining. Any man or woman who sees this movie will leave the theater more estranged from other people, will carry along with them a bit more fear or hatred or rage. The discourse on Fatal Attraction was so granular that two critics could agree as to what fears the film tapped into and completely disagree as to whether or not that was a good thing. Jay Hoberman's Village Voice Review 
though aligned with many of Powers' points of analysis, endorsed the movie where Powers warned against it. Fatal attraction is a metaphor for just how devastating sex itself can be, Hoberman wrote. It's stunned by the power of love to make people disrupt their lives, lose control, suffer delirium, forget who they are, leap into the abyss. The film is compelling because, ultimately, there is no such thing as safe sex. That last line implicitly evoked one of the buzzwords of the AIDS crisis, but another writer in The Village Voice was more direct in assessing how fatal attraction seized on anxieties du jour to accomplish the retrograde aims that so angered powers. Fatal attraction exploits middle America's fear of AIDS and then enlists that fear in a backlash against feminism, wrote Alan Barra. Barra's comments were included in a roundtable The Voice convened at the end of the year, seemingly to allow their writers who hadn't had a chance to weigh in at length a chance to get in on the conversation. Another participant was Karen Durbin, who admitted that she was amazed that her female friends didn't identify with Close's character. I did, Durbin wrote. The same issue included an essay from feminist rock critic Ellen Willis, one of few I've seen to note that Douglas's Dan seems to be just as afraid of his angelic wife as he is of his Medusa-haired mistress. The Village Voice was not the only publication to cover Fatal Attraction so obsessively, but given the presumably intellectual and bohemian audience they spoke to, their sustained interest might be more surprising than the fact that the Los Angeles papers were still assigning stories on the movie months into its release, trying to put this total unicorn of a hit film into a perspective that both the industry and a layperson could utilize. Nearly two months after Fatal Attraction was released, one of the LA Times' regular critics, Sheila Benson, bought a ticket to receive what she referred to as lines, message of terror about women. That late into the life of the film, audiences were still demonstrative. She gave line the backhanded compliment of so effectively demonizing Alex that Quote, even the sparsely scattered audience I saw it with on Hollywood Boulevard seemed unified in their hatred for her. The Times made sure to churn out constant fatal attraction content. And to their credit, they published takes on the film that went against the prevailing wisdom that the film sold a pro-family message. In early October, the paper ran a stunning editorial by Nancy Weber and Lowell Alexander, which, though unhelpfully titled Fatal Attraction, The Mad Woman's Case, coolly critiques the trigger-happy hysteria of the reshot ending. Quote, For the sake of its unity, this happy little family justifies the murder of this woman, who at first sought only respect and fair dealing. Early in the film, Alex is a professional, quite sane and reasonable. But the more she was ignored by Dan, the more extreme became her behavior, an extremity driven by a deep longing and the integrity of her claim. If she is not justified, she is at least understandable. But what is justifiable or understandable 
about a man's double betrayal, in this case, of his marriage and of his intimacy with Alex. A week later, the paper sent two female reporters out into the field to find out who was still going to see Fatal Attraction and what they made of it. The most memorable comment came from David Hamilton, 36, of Los Angeles, who quipped that Fatal Attraction, quote, says that the couple that kills together stays together. It's the ultimate yuppie fascist film. And thus, a couple of weeks later, Time magazine declared Fatal Attraction the zeitgeist hit of the decade. In its every strategy, wrote Richard Corliss, Fatal Attraction is a cagey blend of old and new Hollywood, of current obsessions and conservative solutions. He quoted Sid Gannis, Paramount's marketing chief. There is a fever out there. It is more than a movie. It's part movie, part real life. But Corliss also talked to the opposition. No wonder feminists have cried foul over fatal attraction, he wrote. Alex is the 80s career woman as homicidal vamp. For the feminist point of view, Corliss went to USC professor Marsha Kinder, who located the problem in part in the fact that the, quote, final battle is between the two women. The movie cleverly plays to both sides of woman. And even though it is hateful politically, it is appealing to women. The film itself has a fatal attraction. For the leaders of the feminist movement, fatal attraction wasn't just a movie. They could see the cultural pendulum swinging like a wrecking ball, knocking out the few gains since the 60s. At a conference in the fall of 1987, Betty Friedan, author of the feminist classic The Feminine Mystique, addressed the messages sent by the film that she said feminists should receive and act accordingly. I warn you that in times of great economic chaos, especially when people had dreams of affluence that they now are not going to realize, and when they are not able to have even the choices their parents had economically, women are at risk. We will be told, you were wrong to think you could have it all. You must repent of your aggressive ways. You must repent of your ambition. In times of fear and anxiety, people will be looking for false scapegoats, false solutions. And one of those solutions will be that all of this can be solved by sending women home again. All of this discourse, of course, was good for business. As Corliss put it, even career women who take the film as libel have to see it, if only to know the enemy up close. So it's no wonder that the male members of the Fatal Attraction team seemed to go out of their way to add fuel to this fire. I think Adrian Lyne is a great filmmaker who can be a terrible spokesman for his own films to the point where sometimes he does them a disservice just by opening his mouth. In doing press for Fatal Attraction, he said some good things. He frequently claimed to feel empathy for the character who became the movie's monster in reshoots. Assessing Alex's reception, he told Rolling Stone, It's like a riot in some theaters. They just hate this woman. More than I thought they would, in fact. 
As it turns out, my sympathies were with her for longer than the audience's. I saw her as a tragic and lonely figure. She's pathetic. He screws her not once, but twice, and then pretends it didn't happen. In a sense, he got what he deserved. So far, so good. But Line also offered a now infamous quote about his experience in real life with career women. They are sort of overcompensating for not being men. My wife has never worked. She's the least ambitious person I've ever met. She's a terrific wife. She hasn't the slightest interest in doing a career. Just the fact that he uses the phrase doing a career suggests that he didn't even have words to talk about his wife working. For the record, in 2017, Line claimed he had been misunderstood. The idea that I was trying to condemn career women and say they're all psychotic is just nuts. I'm a feminist. It's unfathomable that Line would have identified himself as a feminist in 1987. Michael Douglas didn't. Promoting the film, he said, I'm really tired of feminists, sick of them. They've really dug themselves into their own grave. Any man would be a fool who didn't agree with equal rights and pay, but some women now, juggling with career, lover, childhood, wifehood, have spread themselves too thin and are very unhappy. It's time they looked at themselves and stopped attacking men. Guys are going through a terrible crisis right now because of women's unreasonable demands. Maybe fatal attraction works because Douglas was playing his convictions that it was unreasonable for a wife to expect fidelity or for a mistress to expect basic human respect. Even James Dearden, whose short film Lansing had so identified with, said he wouldn't personally want to marry a working woman. Quote, because they have their careers and their careers would probably conflict with your career and there would probably be rivalry and it wouldn't be that kind of mutually supportive relationship. How supportive can a husband be if his wife wants to work and he doesn't support that? Jay Hoberman wrote that, almost despite itself, fatal attraction has a feminist subtext. And that certainly seems spot on when you dig into the statements made by men who made the movie who couldn't fathom true equality with their partners. That's why it's such a valuable time capsule of male attitudes about women at this time. It bottles their rage and resentment at having to treat female romantic partners and woman co-workers as actual human beings. Some critics insisted Alex was an unrealistic portrayal of a career woman. But the commentary from the men who made the movie maddeningly betrays how a woman could get so frustrated that it would send her over the edge. One thing that seems absent from most of the writing about Fatal Attraction from 1987 and 1988 is other movies. But as all films are made in part by the context of their time, I want to say a few words about a few other films from that year that seem to tap into related things. Fatal Attraction was preceded in the marketplace by another very interesting film about two women, one a man-eater and the other a tool of the patriarchy. That film was called Black Widow, 
And we're actually going to talk about it more in Erotic 90s when we do a whole episode on its star, Teresa Russell. But suffice it to say, though Black Widow did fine at the box office, sadly for its director, Bob Rafelson, it was another instance in which he made a movie that got eclipsed by another film that was sort of his movie's twin. In an interview Rafelson gave in February 1987 to promote Black Widow, he said that he had been drawn to the story because the two main characters shared what he called, quote, a fatalistic attraction. He was clearly on to something, but by the time Fatal Attraction was released seven months later, Black Widow was long gone. Black Widow netted almost the exact same box office total as another 1987 film that had something to say about women's lives in the 80s, Baby Boom. Nancy Myers had written that comedy, in which Diane Keaton finds she cannot juggle motherhood with corporate success, decamps to Vermont and reinvents herself as a Martha Stewart-type entrepreneur, in consultation with Nadine Braun a real businesswoman who had figured out how to have both career and baby. But when Backlash author Susan Faludi interviewed Braun, she admitted that she didn't feel like Baby Boom reflected her own experience. And in fact, in showing its heroine only finding success outside of the corporate world, it alighted the real problem. I know it's Hollywood and all, said Braun. But what bothered me is that the movie assumed that is the only way, to give it all up and move to the country. In the movie, she has to leave because the men who run things in Manhattan essentially force her to choose between her adopted child and them. Not unlike the men who made Fatal Attraction, who cannot seem to fathom that women could transcend the cookie-cutter roles. Society has not been willing to adapt to these new patterns of women, Nadine Braun told Susan Faludi. Society punishes you. The fatal attraction conversation was so all-consuming that while all eyes were on it, another provocative film was quietly doing enormous business at the box office. Dirty Dancing. Gene Siskel, then one of America's two most famous film critics, was an anomaly in suggesting in January 1988 that Dirty Dancing's essentially old-fashioned pleasures were what studios should emulate, rather than try to duplicate the lightning-strike, raw-nerve Rorschach test of fatal attraction. Siskel put Dirty Dancing in league with The Way We Were as a romance about two people on opposite sides of a class divide who probably don't belong together long-term, but can change one another for the better for a while. I've seen Dirty Dancing many, many, many times. But after reading this Siskel piece, I thought it would be worth watching it again, to think about it existing in the same moment as Fatal Attraction. If Fatal Attraction is a superficially reactionary movie that, whether it wants to or not, lives on as a document of toxic masculinity and an indictment of the conservative cultural moment that made it, Dirty Dancing is kind of the opposite. It's a liberal movie about treating all human beings well and letting go of prejudices based on class, sex, etc. 
its political commentary can be crude and pointed all at once. Some people count, some people don't, says the Ivy League waiter who knocked up a dancer by way of explaining why he won't pay for her abortion. In the very next beat, this guy hands Jennifer Gray's baby a copy of The Fountainhead. But maybe more than any 80s movie other than The Big Chill, Dirty Dancing promotes the dangerous fantasy that the spirit of the 60s could live on in the 80s. The film critiques the hypocrisy of classist limousine liberalism, but also fetishizes it. I think it wants to make the case that abortions should be safe and legal by showing an unsafe, illegal one. But I think Risky Business wanted to do a lot of things too. And I wonder how many people watched Dirty Dancing and nodded their heads over the idea that some people don't count. Even though it's set in 1963, Dirty Dancing is full of music, which the characters seem to hear and dance to, that's clearly from the 80s. The last dance of the season at the upscale Jewish Catskills Resort, where a recently fired Patrick Swayze storms in, says nobody puts baby in the corner and hijacks the proceedings to everyone's delight, is set to I've Had the Time of My Life, a song which doesn't pretend to be anything other than an 80s power ballad. And the dance Baby and Johnny perform to it melds the past and present through choreography. There's a moment in the final scene that I've always found both troubling and exhilarating, when Swayze leaps off the stage and into the audience, as if breaking the fourth wall, and also breaking through space and time to merge the 60s with the 80s. Dirty Dancing is about the last moment of the good old days that Reaganism was a phony nostalgia gambit to recapture. In its final moments, it tells us that we can live in those good old days, again, in the late 80s. Watching the final scene recently, I was overcome with emotion. I weeped for a full 10 minutes. It's absolutely powerful musical filmmaking, but it's also maybe evil. What Dirty Dancing does have over Fatal Attraction other than a more diverse cast and, I think, sexier sex, is a completely different idea of manhood. Patrick Swayze, like Gene Kelly before him, was a ballet dancer with the body of a manual laborer. His physical presence combined strength and grace like few people who have ever been in movies. And his performance here is shockingly emotional and vulnerable. The movie works as well as it does because he so bravely defies and complicates every image of American masculinity put forth by Hollywood movies over the decade to that point. This alone makes Dirty Dancing a valuable counterpoint to the culture of 1987 as captured in Fatal Attraction. Dirty Dancing was a movie that made it feel good to live in the 80s, and that in itself was a fantasy for many by 1988. Certainly, for women who were Dirty Dancing's primary audience, the backlash against feminism seemed to be winning. In 1990, Susan Flutie wrote, What has made women unhappy in the last decade is not their equality, 
which they don't yet have, but the rising pressure to halt and even reverse women's quest for that equality. Think about Michael Douglas saying something like, equal pay is fine, but feminists have gone too far, at a moment when equal pay didn't even exist. For most women, it still doesn't exist. A few years after Fatal Attraction, Line was still defending himself on this score. If anything, he was more defensive. I think it was silly to say that because one made a movie about a career lady who was eventually psychotic, the equation is all career ladies are psychotic. He told GQ in 1993. That's just daft. The real danger is if you start the process of self-censorship. If you think, well, I can't touch that because the feminists are going to be enraged. I think that would be awful. Of course, Lyon's worst-case scenario here has come true, but not necessarily because of feminists. When people ask why no one makes movies like Fatal Attraction anymore, part of the reason has to be that one or more generations of filmmakers understand that discourse has changed, and when they imagine how their movie would be received, they feel constrained. In some sense, this is a good thing. Filmmakers should probably think twice before they put certain things out into the world. But the shocking thing about revisiting the discourse around fatal attraction is that it truly feels like every possible opinion on the film was treated as though it was valid and worthy of airing. And that feels like a good thing, too. There wasn't a correct opinion that shut off all further conversation. Because of that, we can still debate the messages the movie projects and how it communicates them and how we feel about that. And I wish movies like Fatal Attraction were being made now to, for better or worse, freeze in amber 2022's many unresolved issues between men and women. Next week, we come to the last year of Reagan's 80s, which would live on in the rise of a new face of all-American masculinity. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like this show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. And we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember this podcast.com. You can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, 
You can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.